Uh, welcome to episode four of Open Paren. Uh, I am here with Whitney Watkins, who until like five seconds ago was an academic librarian, but is now a web systems engineer at Analog Devices, uh, as well as a writer for Lita Blog and a code clubber and all sorts of other awesome things that I'm sure she will tell us about. Um, so Whitney, tell the internet, what do you do and why? Um, so I'm a web systems engineer, which is a fancy way of saying I'm a systems librarian. Um, I got into systems librarianship about hmm, four years ago when I was working at a medical library and they said, oh, we want to have a website and oh, our library system is um, Excel sheets and nothing is cataloged and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is absolutely like insane. And so I had taken on the endeavor to automate a very small library, but basically got introduced to the ins and outs of managing an ILS and then the website. I mean, I did little bits of coding and modifying, you know, like my live journal way back when, but um, I never really had the opportunity to, I didn't take any computer science courses. And so this was the first time for me to really dive in and um, it kind of just rolled out from there. And I really found that my niche was in the systems end of organization, which is what brought me to libraries. And mm -hmm. I've just kind of gone through that. So, yeah. You know, it's amazing to me that there's still libraries that have not been automated in the US. Although I know that it's true because I, I interned at a law library that had very minimal automation going on. And I know that if you're a you know one person library that it it's a lot of work to change all those things. Um, but it's fascinating yeah. to me that that's still that's still a thing. So I'd love to hear more about what it's like to do that from scratch because there are a lot of people who just have never had that experience these days. Um, so what led me to do it was I was, you know, working with a student and I was like, well, do you need a, like, they didn't know about the book, about the books. And they're like, I don't know what you have. I'm like, you don't like, why do we have all this stuff if you can't use it? They had no way to search it except if I handed them a binder to flip through it. And I was like, this is not efficient. This is not a great user experience. This is terrible. Like as a student, I would have been incredibly frustrated. And as a librarian, I was frustrated that we were spending all of this money on expensive medical books that nobody was using, that we were purchasing these softwares and other like electronic books that nobody was using. And um, so I kind of just said, well, this will be a really good project for me to do. I had actually just started library school and so I was going through those, um, can't even think of the core classes, but the ones where you go through database building and all of that. And thought, well, I could figure this out. I have a handful of librarian friends who are full librarians that catalog and do other things. I can ask them for help. And went through the process and realized it wasn't as terrible as it seemed. And when I left, the students were like the the statistics in the library had grown like tenfold and it they were actually coming and saying hey do you have this book can we get this book like it would be really great if we could get this book and requesting for stuff and knowing what we had and i was just kind of like this is this is really cool i like making things accessible and more efficient and yeah so that's kind of what sparked that whole process and 
I stayed with systems librarianship um, because I got I really wanted to work at a large academic university and I got an offer while I was at the medical library from UC Riverside which is exactly what that is when I was in Southern California so I took it and went with it and had an incredible boss who trained me about everything ins and outs of um, the ILS system that they used and I really enjoyed all of the parts and that there was always a problem every day there was something may not have been difficult but there was always some change to it and I just really enjoyed it and continued with it and then I finished my library degree and so happens now I am in Massachusetts. <laughs> right just down the road for me. I, yeah. I'm with you in that part of what drew me to the systems end of things is there's always a new problem, right? I, I get bored really easily and I don't like it. <laughs> but it's hard to get bored in a technology thing because there is always some new problem or some new technology to learn or something like that. Um, that yeah, was actually there's always something new to learn. So what are you learning these days or what do you wish you would you would learn if you had like infinite learning time, which having just switched to a new job, oh. you may or may not. <laughs> <laughs> so switching to the new job, uh, because it's in corporate, they're not using, I mean, the traditional things that I had been working with in academic libraries. So basically every system that I now have to manage and maintain is new to me. So mm -hmm. um, I've never worked with Google search appliances. And so we have two of those that I have to handle. And it's a lot of, uh, op they use a lot of open source software. And so I'm like basically um, knee deep in documentation on all of these different systems. They don't use Google Analytics. They use an open source software, which I'm sure I'm, sure I'm mispronouncing it, um, but at Pywik. I don't oh, know, yeah. we had a debate Heard in the office it. about what to pronounce it. Yeah, so we're using I don't know how it's spelled, so I have a link to it in the show notes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we're using that instead of Google Analytics. I mean, things that are like similar at the core, but there's still differences. And so that's what I'm learning right now. What I wish I was learning well is that I was kind of getting bored with the technology in academia because it was more or less all the same. Everybody was using the same vendors. Um, if they weren't using the same vendors, they were using one that was very similar. And I was just like, okay, I get this. They're all built the same, but I'm not learning anything new. Um, I might learn, oh, okay, this is how you might do it in this system. And so mm -hmm. I'm actually super stoked um, with that. I want to be spending a lot more time, especially after, um, shameless plug, Lita Forum, I did a poster presentation and there was on a project I'm working on that there was substantial feedback on, like positive, like this is amazing, we wish you would pursue this like much harder and I wish I had more time to do that, and that is, um, I think I mentioned the assessment app that's based on echolocation and acoustics. And I really want to kind of dive into that because I've been doing less of the back end, more of the this is the idea, this is what I want it to do, this is what we need it to do. I want to kind of get more into the deep part of it and actually doing the mathematical equations to, to figure out how to process the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that you had that poster, but I hadn't had the chance to dig into it yet. So I'd love to hear more about how it works. Yeah, so um, it's a mobile app that we are building. It came up from, oddly enough, 
an idea after being stuck on a plane with a colleague on our flight back from Lida last year. He was at a different conference, just happened to be. He is a um, signals processing engineer. And I was talking to him about, you know, he was just saying, how was the conference? Like, it was really good. And um, we had talked about his, and he started talking about this project he was doing about being able to find locations of people without the use of GPS. And I was like, what in the world are you like, what? It just totally threw me off. And he explained process of echolocation and how they were using that. And I thought, that's brilliant. We could, you know, I was like, I've always wanted to, library spaces are never, not never, but usually not set up to the best acoustic quality um, and what you want to use them for. And so I was explaining to him, I was like, you know, it'd be really cool if we could create something that would be able to assess a physical space based on um, the acoustic properties, because it's really hard to tell how loud something's going to be without persons being in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we could create something that could do that. And he was like, oh yeah, that would be way easy. I'm like, really? Because in my head, I'm thinking this is going to be really difficult. And mm -hmm. we endeavored on it. We've been um, going through a bunch of different spaces at my previous employer and testing them out. And what it does is it sends a sonic sound throughout the room. And um, the reflection of that sound comes back to the mic in the phone. And what it does is it processes that data and tells us um, how the intensity of that reflection, like if it was like 40% of the initial ping um, and how far away whatever it reflected off was. And so you know where it's coming from and if it's you know gonna be something that's gonna cause a lot of echo. And we mm -hmm. ran it in a bunch of spaces and we were able to determine whether the space would have been, uh, is set up for a good quiet study space or if it's set up for um, like a conference space or like um, a small meeting space or an activity space based on the reflections that we were getting back and the intensity of them. And so we've been working on that and creating it. So uh, ideally accessibility and ease of use. Um, we just, we previous employer, I haven't quite fully adjusted, um, just did some renovations in their library. And I'm always thinking about space assessment and how we're using spaces and if they're set up to how they should be or to the best of you know what we want them to be. And we found out that a couple of our spaces acoustically um, in agreement to what we had set them up for. So we had a study space that was actually very um, reflective of sound. Yeah, um, it was like a reading room. And it was a reading room for you know lots of people to be in there, but it didn't absorb any of the sound. So usually there was only one person in there because it echoed and people would get irritated and leave. And then they built a brand new um, classroom, you know, small, like 14 student lecture room, basically, for faculty to book to engage in discussion. And they made the acoustics way too good. And so it absorbed all the noise, like you would talk and it would not go anywhere. And so the energy of that communication kind of dissipated. And you didn't really see a lot of conversation going on. You saw a lot of sitting there and heads nodding type of thing or taking notes, but there was never any like really lively discussion. And I think a lot of it had to do with because the energy from the noise was absorbed. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's what uh, we've been working on and we want to make it so that not only will it give us that data, but it'll tell you, recommend 
It'll tell you what kind of a space is set up for, what kind of a space it isn't set up for, and then give you recommendations on how to manipulate the space based on certain material um, and so that it's easy to use and you don't have to bring in a contractor or whatnot and work with that. So yeah, that's that project. I'm pretty excited about it. And I'm even more excited now because my colleague was like, do you really think anybody's going to care about this? Like, because I was like, this is a really cool idea. It'd be fun. And he wasn't totally convinced that it was useful. And now I, I he's convinced now after Lita because so many people were like, this is really awesome. So like, Super okay, cool. So can we get our yeah, I was like, can we get our students now? And he's like, okay, well, I've got like four students lined up. I'll we'll bring them in to, to do, because um, they're doing a database of material and mm -hmm. reflection type if it's absorbent of sound or reflex sound. So, yeah, so that's, that's one of the awesome. projects that I've, I'm really excited about and that we're working on, just finding yes. the time to do it with the new job. That's like the sort of thing where, I think if people stop to think, they'd probably realize, oh, this, this room is really echoey or whatever, but they wouldn't stop to think. They're just like, wow, this class is inexplicably boring. Mm -hmm. and, and I love that it's, it's code, so it's this really abstract, electrical, invisible thing, but you've found a way to use it to have concrete effects on the real world. Yeah. Yeah. It, do, do you know if people have actually planned or implemented any changes to the, the reading room or the classroom space as a result of the intelligence that they've gotten from this? Um, they've thought about adding um, like uh, a different like um, furniture. So it's a lot of bookshelves and they've thought about manipulating some of the stuff so it's not reflecting so much off of the bookshelves. But the room um, I don't know how much renovation they can do to it because it was donated by a trustee and it's a beautiful room. Mm -hmm. It's one of the prettiest rooms in the library, but I think they should repurpose it. It shouldn't so much be as a reading room, but I don't know if mm -hmm. um, they have the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. so. Hmm. so, yeah, but the, uh, the room that absorbs a lot of sound, when I mentioned that to them, they thought, wow, I wonder, you know, what we, we could do to make it a little bit more reflective because uh, even the table doesn't really bounce off much noise. It kind of hmm. absorbs a good decent amount of it. So, yeah, we had finished all of that data probably maybe a month before I had um, left the, the mm -hmm. school. And so I'm not quite sure. Do you know, is the code open source anywhere? Uh, I'm, it's currently not because the app is still totally like alpha. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's mainly alpha. And um, we have a couple of students and another professor out west who have been helping us on it. And we just need to get the approval from everyone. Um, mm -hmm. I want it to be open source, but there's a little bit of, well, I don't know, should we do that? I'm like, yes, we should. Why should we not? Why does it matter? We should share this because it's really cool. I don't really care about making money off of it. I want people to have ability to use this and make it better. And so, yeah, that's currently not available. Ah, that's too bad. Have you seen the yeah. article uh, Dale Askey wrote for Code for Lib Journal a while ago now, but it is sadly still very applicable on why we don't open source our code? 
I, I remember briefly reading some of it, but I, I didn't finish it. So yeah. I, not anything to do with Dale, just my life got crazy. <laughs> no, I understand. The, the, the number of things that I should have read in, in various journals is quite large, but it's, I'll link to it later. But he talked to a bunch of people and basically investigated reasons um, that people don't. And what one of them, which you alluded to is perfectionism, right? People don't want to release things because it might not be perfect and then they'll look bad and they'll feel weird. And of course, code is never perfect and probably people aren't gonna look at you like you're incompetent, but it's a legitimate fear. Um, and there's support burden and uh, like intellectual property issues. Anyway, there's, there's like five different issues he investigated. Um, and I'll have to link to it because I, I can hear like several of those in, what your colleagues are saying, but also maybe you can hand the article to them and be like, no, look, seriously, you should just do it. Everyone will be happier. It doesn't have to be yeah. perfect. It's okay. I have put some seriously cruddy code on my website where everyone can see it and nobody died. So, <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, um, people, people can write code where people will die if the code is bad. My husband writes code to make 30-ton robots drive themselves. And, like, if he gets it wrong, someone actually legit dies. Um, but but we don't write that code, you know? We're not no. doing that. There this are no giant robots. <laughs> this is a, oh, we goofed up on our space situation. Uh, whoop de doo Like, yes. It will be okay. Exactly. But that said, though, speaking of like mammoth CS enterprises, one of the things you mentioned uh, before the the talk the, or before the show now is you wanted to talk about what it's like to be a systems person without a CS degree. Uh, I am also a systems person without a CS degree. I have a math degree, so it's kind of close. But but lots of us don't have CS degrees, even though there's there's still that feeling that like you're supposed to have the formal background or whatever. Um, and it's, it, I think it's particularly dislocating for librarians because it's a very credentially field, right? You're supposed to have the MLS, even though that's a deeply fraught issue. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard to imagine being like totally competent in a field with no formal training, but that's like the norm in a lot of coding and it's kind of weird. So what, what, what did you have to say about that? I think, um, honestly, if you have the will and the desire to do it, like I'm here, I've figured it out. I have. My degrees are in history and philosophy. I mean that. I mean that. That's nothing to do. I guess you know logic from philosophy, but basically like nothing to do with computer science or math. And yeah, I was given a problem to solve, and I figured it out. And I I think the hardest part for me about not having having that that formalized training is I often second guess. Like I'm thinking. Should I know this? Is this something I would have known because I got the degree? Or is this, you know, common to not know this? And so I have to reach out a lot, but it's really difficult because I think, hmm, should I, like, are they going to think I'm, I'm an idiot? And most of the time, no. Mm -hmm. People just want to help. But it, it, it causes me, I think, to work extra hard to make sure I know the stuff because I don't want to look like an idiot. I was like, but because I try so hard to do that, like, I learn even more and so you know there's like that pro and con to it and i i think um trying to think what i want to say about this there are so many tools out there to learn how to code and learn so many different languages that i don't know and we're gonna get maybe a little controversy 
just like with the MLS degree, I don't know if a CS degree is, is all that necessary anymore um, to determine competence with being a systems librarian or anything with code. Um, that it's more about a portfolio that you build and the things that projects that you show and the willingness to learn and the ability to solve problems. And, you know, it's, it's less on, I have this degree, I have this piece of paper that says I studied these courses. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they have you know, a benefit to it, but I don't think it's, it's necessary. And I'm really grateful that we kind of are in a stage where creating opportunities to learn code in neutral environments exists and is encouraged. And they have mm -hmm. you know, things like Hour of Code that is you know started up that provides these opportunities to kind of get a taste about if somebody likes it or not, um, rather than, you know, somebody throwing a website in your lap and saying, good luck. Um, right. Like what, you know, I had, <laughs> you know, it, it's right. different, but it's just, you know, it's still super helpful. And yeah, so I, I don't think, again, that it's necessary to have a CS degree to do what I do. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I always think I'm incompetent because well, that's just kind of what we do. I have no idea what I'm doing. Let's see if I can figure it out. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, you know that picture on the internet of like the, the dog that's like typing on the keyboard and it's captioned, I have no idea what I'm doing. I feel like that a lot. <laughs> and it does make me really hesitant to ask questions in, in a way that yeah. I think probably is detrimental to my learning. I'm sure there are times when like, I would have learned things faster if I just been like, how does this work? But I'm, I'm very hesitant to do that. <laughs> um, particularly in male dominated spaces, which is kind of weird because I, I went to a college that was 75% male and like, I was very socially comfortable there, but there's still like just enough, you know, girls suck at math, right? Like the XKCD comic, right? If, if, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're a minority in the space, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do that. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I don't, I don't feel, or maybe this is, maybe I'm not speaking for the whole world here, but I don't, I don't feel like it, it's controversial to say that you don't need a CS degree. Cause I look around at like the, the people who are really prominent coders in libraries and their college majors were like English and creative writing and musical theater several times over <laughs> and philosophy and I'm hard pressed to think of CS majors. Like I'm sure they're out there, um, but they don't spring as re readily to mind, to be honest with you. There, there's just nowhere near yeah. as many of them. And even in, in like the Cambridge, Massachusetts tech scene, which I'm, I'm pretty familiar with since that's where my husband is employed and a bunch of my friends, like some of them have CS degrees. Um, and having a CS degree from a, a big name school is certainly an effective way to get recruited into the tech pipeline, but there's just as many physicists out there. <laughs> like there are, I know so many physicists who are like, wait, I, I, PhDs are terrible. I should just write software, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of me thinks that, um, you know, there are so many, the, systems librarian by accident type of thing like mm. you know you ask well, how did you get involved with systems librarianship and um I, I very few people have i heard say oh well that's what i studied in library school mm -hmm. like yeah uh, really okay um 
But I think as librarians, we already have this like innate desire to, to learn. And for me, it was like, well, somebody needed to do the job and we were willing to do it, mm -hmm. that it, it doesn't, I mean, it's all about that willingness. And um, I, just, I don't, yes, there's education to, to an extent, but I don't think you need all of these degrees to determine, as you said, you know, that you have the ability to do something. I mean, at one point I thought maybe I wanted to go to do a PhD and the other time I was like, ah, not so much. Like, what is that? <laughs> like, that's not going to do anything for me. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of am with you on that. I did have I did have one intro programming class in college, um, so I had that formal background, and I, I actually found that extremely useful. Although I have not used it per se, and it was in C plus plus, which I don't like at all. I like the teacher, I like the class, but I really dislike C plus plus. Um, but having that formal background, I find did make it a lot easier to self teach because there's so much with self teaching. There's like this introductory, just like what the hell am I looking at sort of hurdle. Mm -hmm. Um, and having had one formal class, like, got me past that, like, what are even these concepts, right? Yeah. Um, and I took a databases class in library school, which was hugely helpful. But aside from that, it, it was it was kind of like your story, where it's like, I was, um, I was, I was in a meeting with the rest of the Ungluit crowd back when I was working for Ungluit, and we were talking about, like, the designers we were thinking of hiring. And the, the one whose design we liked best um, didn't have the coding skills to integrate his uh, code with our website. And our coders were so busy writing the back end, they didn't really have time to write the front end. So we're like, well, we could find someone else who, who's good at code, but whose design we don't like as much, or, or, or what do we do? And I'm, I'm sort of, I'm looking at the documentation for Django, like in a tab while we're having this conference. I'm like, I don't know, I guess I can do this. And Eric Hellman, thanks Eric, was basically like, good, because I already told them we were hiring him and that's what you're going to do. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I am now our front end engineer. Sweet. <laughs> so that's how I started coding, yeah, basically. I mean, that's, it's that's, just like, okay, now I have to I, make I, the website work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I took one, maybe two formal sort of coding classes in library school, mm -hmm. but other than that, that that was it. But yes, you you say you know that intro to it really helps when you look at something else. You kind of get an understanding of the format. I mean, it yeah. might still look a little bit like gibberish, but you've seen something before. You kind of get how some of the parts feed in together. Yeah, and I, I worry about the pipeline for people. I know that we both have done some teaching of beginners to code, and I I worry about the pipeline for people who don't have something like that because. I think it's easy to buy into the narrative of like there's there's so many learning resources and everyone is everything is free and everyone is an autodidact, right? But when you dig deeper, it's like, well, <laughs> why did my husband learn to code as a kid and I didn't, even though in many ways we're very demographically similar and have similar uh, like intellectual strengths and weaknesses? Um, and part of it was he was more into it than I was um, and more self-directed at that age. But part of it is his dad had rudimentary programming skills, right? Not gigantic, right. but some, and mine didn't. So like when I got stuck, I didn't have anyone I could ask. Exactly. <laughs> or, or like I look exactly. at my, my kid who's, who's eight, 
and he's gotten completely obsessed with Scratch and knows these slightly older kids who know a lot more about Scratch and have been feeding her this like steady drip of like, oh, here's another thing you can do. And like, we realized yesterday that like conceptually, she's basically now at where my husband was in middle school in terms of programming skills. And partly that's because Scratch now exists, like go Scratch, but partly that's because she has this community to be in. And when she grows up, she's not gonna think of that necessarily as like learning or support that she had, because it was just like osmotic, but it's mm -hmm. gonna be there making it easier for her to absorb things. And I, I think it's easy for us to like understate the value of the, those smaller or even informal aspects of our learning. Um, but I yeah. do wonder, like, how do we get across that bridge for people who really do not have prior background before adults in learning to code? You try, like, that's, that's you know, as somebody who didn't have that background, um, my parents don't have that interest at all. Most of my family doesn't have that interest. Um, getting into programming is, was like just something that happened, but, but that made, made me um, a lot more sensitive to those who have an interest now but don't know where to start don't know where to go I mean I'm so, like I'm very enthusiastic about somebody just trying it if you don't like it fine just I mean if you have any interest in it let, let's figure out how you can try it out and we'll go from there I said but if you decide that that's not for you then just toss it aside and move on and mm -hmm. um, so like I'm, I'm super sensitive to those people who do have that interest and in trying to figure out how we can create the environment that kids are growing up in now where they're completely surrounded by technology and coding and building technology and working with things like Raspberry Pi and Arduino and little bits and building all of these things that I guess for us were blocks and railroad tracks and Legos mm -hmm. with, you know, that they had now have the technology that we we didn't really grow up with that I didn't grow up with that influence, um, and that, which is why I'm super grateful for uh, things like Hour of Code or things like Code Academy and simple, easy, free ways to kind of just get into it and see what it's about, and then mm -hmm. go beyond that if you want to. So, so I, I think it's really go ahead. How, sorry, have you found like ways of structuring or teaching workshops to help make it more accessible and get that feeling of like it's okay to just try things when you work with beginners? Yeah, so my first year at St. Lawrence University, which is where I worked just previous to my current job, um, you know, as systems librarian, I'm always like, okay, I got to figure stuff out and I'm, I'm always looking at new resources, but I also talk about what I do and I, you know, some people get interested and some people don't. And I'm like, you know what? I heard about this hour of code thing. I went to my boss and said, Hey, I'd like to put on just an hour of code workshop and, you know, open it up to the community, to faculty, to staff, to students. Cause I wanted to enable people to do more with their technology. And it was pretty successful, given that I brought it up a week before I wanted to do it. And they said, <laughs> go ahead. And we had like 35, 40 people show up. And it was awesome. People had fun. But then I, I you know, was getting feedback in 
what's led into my like uh, next project was is asking people, you know, what do you think? They're like, yeah, this it's really fun. Like, this isn't as scary as I thought. I do next. It was like, okay, now you've introduced it. Like, how does this play into my life? Like, no, maybe I don't want to be a programmer. You know, I'm already, you know, X amount of years, you know, 50 years old and halfway to retirement or almost about to retire. Like, what what use of this is this to me? And that sparked the, how often do we introduce something to somebody and then um, drop it at that and not give them a way to go beyond? And so I started working with a um, uh, one of our programmers in IT, a Drupal developer. Do you want to teach, uh, like get together and teach these workshops, but mm -hmm. teach um, things that are useful? So like uh, he wrote a script for our photographer that ran through all of her images, resized them and renamed them. So she didn't have manually. It's like, and that's something that we were focused on was like, can we teach them skills or things that they are going to encounter beyond this this space so if they wanted to do a blog do they know how to do um you actually you know edit the html or customize something that you don't always get with the WYSIWYG? do they know how to do that are they going to have you know the opportunity to uh work with raspberry pi you know can we show them how to do some of that engineering and in a space that was like in the library open to anybody who wanted to come and we just thought up of different different basic programming things. Like one of my favorite apps is the If This Then That app because mm -hmm. it is the basic if this action, then do this. I mean, that's simple, simple programming at the, the lowest level, but it explains and shows and it's simple to use. It says, this is, this is programming. This is saying, okay, when we do this, then I want this to happen. And, um, but it also taught them at, about an application, a technology that they could take beyond that workshop and continue mm -hmm. to use it for efficient and functionality in their own life. And yeah. it just showed, I really wanted to show that programming isn't just what's in your computer. It's not just what's in your phone. It's, um, you know, like it's, you can use it in your life. It exists right. all around us and, um, and and so you know that that whole functionality with with teaching in that 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 situation that this is going beyond you, we use it in our everyday everyday yeah. life it's all around us yeah. so yeah i mean we both just said basically we learned to program because we had actual problems we wanted to solve so yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. it's one of the things that i always i try to look for when i'm teaching people but it's it it is pretty much impossible within the scope of a workshop um, unless people come in with a lot of prior background um, to sort of draw the line from, you know, the, these concepts we're learning right now to what you want to do. Because there are there are tools like IFTTT that's, uh, that are awesome for being able to do actionable things. But getting from things like this is a for loop to like, this is a thing that goes through your directory and renames and resizes all your images is a bit more yes. of a step. 
<laughs> um, and then if people come in with really big or really nebulous plans, you know, like I want to write a CMS or whatever, it's like, well, that might take a little while, huh? And, but yeah. I don't want you to get like discouraged before you get there. But it's like, that's not a beginner project. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think um, that's, you know, we, we started off at the, at how we did all these workshops were mainly my goal was to provide that environment for somebody who doesn't have that coding experience, who doesn't really know anything about it, um, to come in and learn something new and then progressively over the series of workshops, if they came back, they mm -hmm. would learn and it would kind of all tie in together in the end. And, and that was, that was the goal was that yes, if they attended one workshop, they could still take something away from it and, and never come back and they'd still learn something new. Mm -hmm. But if they attended all of them or even more, you know, a couple of them, they would be able to piece work together a lot of different things um, and, and work it, work through it that way. So. Yeah. yeah, that's brilliant. It's nice when you have the, the option of having multiple workshops over time. Definitely <laughs> opens up a lot of possibilities. Yes. That, yeah. Yeah. That I haven't had so much. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. I, I've never attended a, a coding workshop ever um, until I ran the hour of code <laughs> one. And it was like, well, this was a learning experience, but you know, here's some takeaways and let's, let's see if we can make this a bigger deal, make this a bigger thing mm -hmm. um, and, and really get, more people involved mm -hmm. who think that, oh, coding is only for, you know, smart people or people who are in math, into math or, or whatever, mm -hmm. and not for people like me. And mm -hmm. like, well, if you have an interest, let's, let's see, it could be like people, it could be for people like you, whatever right. like you is. Right. Possibly exactly like you. <laughs> so, yeah. So speaking of, of learning code, you also identified yourself as a code clubber. So I would love. Yes. <laughs> so I'm interested in that because that's that's you as student rather than you as learner. So uh, you want to like proselytize the glory of Code Club? Code Club is um, something that makes me feel like the biggest idiot, but I like I'm totally addicted to it because <laughs> I again I don't I only know so so many different there are so many languages um, when it comes to programming. There are so many mm. different ways of doing stuff and so many um, different projects that are built on different formations of code that uh, you know there's always something different that's coming to the table and when we meet for code club you know somebody's brought something in that I'm like I have never even heard of this but let's let's look at it and I'm like okay wait what does this mean you know wait what it what, how's this running like thinking about it sometimes the philosophy side of me gets the better of me because I'm like wait that doesn't make sense We've yes. got to like, go through this. And I'm like, no, 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 where does that come from? Like, uh, yeah, trying to figure out how can you call that up when you have no idea that it actually exists in the library. Like, Python's library is ginormous. And I'm like, wait, how do you know which ones to call? How do you know which ones to read? Which, which libraries you want to use? And that was something that I, you know, had to kind of figure out over time. But it was with Code Club that really helped me as we read through bits and pieces of code, some, you know, for the most part, very small projects and, um, you know, go through those and, sorry, hold on this. 
husband keeps calling me and I told him <laughs> to hold off for a minute, but yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, code club, uh, once a week and, um, yeah, a bunch of us get together and just kind of read through some code. Whoever is in charge of it will bring some project that they're working on and like, oh, hey, I came across this little bit of code. Do you guys want to read it? And we're like, sure. It's like um, a spontaneous book club <laughs> where you may or may not have read the book, but you get to discuss it anyways. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, reading it together, I suppose, exactly that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I um, So originally the code club, you know, came from... Coral and her, you know, I was involved with the original yes. as, as you, as were you. Her awesome and presentation. After that, I wanted to open it up and expand it more. And so, uh, when I was at Access in Toronto, I had pinged out to a couple of people because Code Club was brought up again, but from Sarah Simpkin in one of her presentations. And um, I was like, oh yeah, if anybody's interested in doing something like this, you know, let me know. We can. Put it together because i kind of wanted to um, expand beyond our, our current group and that part of that was me being like i like my code club but i think i want to expand it to all genders and not just to the gals i'm you know studying with because you know there's always different views and i there were people that i wanted to work with that I was like, uh, you can't really join my current code club, so let's create a new one and let's have another group to meet and, and chat. And then, yeah, so we haven't had a chance to meet because all of our lives more or less just flipped, but we're sitting in the group like, oh yeah, let's do it this, or you know, kind of just working our mm -hmm. way out and we're experimenting with it and doing it through Slack. So oh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Interesting. That actually I can see as huh, a really effective way to do it. It's very different because it would be asynchronous, but maybe that's useful and maybe that gives everyone time to think and process. Yeah, and Google Hangouts is integrated into Slack, so I mean, you can do the, mm -hmm. the video and the sharing and stuff, but you can also easily share the link to the code and the scheduling and, you know, through different channels and hmm. chat at the same time. Like, I... I I have high hopes for it, um, yeah. using it this way. So. I am going to want to hear how that turns out because I, like the, the synchronous nature of the, the code club that I used to be in is just, it's such a strong feature of how it worked that I, I can see the asynchrony working, but it feels like it might be very different. I, I'm, I'm going to be curious to hear how that affects this. Yeah. Huh. We'll see. So. Yeah. Well, I think I think we've talked about all the things that we we talked about talking about that I think was a sentence, um, and clearly it is getting late enough that I cannot English anymore. Um, so, is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrap things up? Not that I can think of. Um, no, yeah, I just feeling a. We've talked about everything. <laughs> but, <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm good with talking with. So. Well, then, thank you for being on the show. And I'm really glad we got to talk and that you're basically down down the road from me now, a couple of times away. Um, so we're going to have to talk like not over the internet sometime. It'll be great. Um, yes. 
<laughs> anyway, thank you for being on the show. And until next time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.